Right, uh, good evening everybody. Welcome to the LSE and welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy uh, public lecture on Beyond the Eye of the Beholder with uh, Guy de Man. I'm Simon Bendinning and I'm the director of the Forum for European Philosophy. And um, I wanted to note at this point, first of all, that we don't or hitherto have not done lectures very much. <coughs> we have tried to steer away from allowing people to talk for so long. Um, this came about as a result of experiences very early on when the Forum for European Philosophy took up offices in the London School of Economics in 2003. We were a very kitchen table outfit at that time and we had our first events all lined up and what they turned out to be were research papers given by academics to a wide general public audience. Now, I don't know how many of you have heard a research paper by an academic, but they are living death. Their heads down, they seem to be speaking to a community of about three, one of whom is themselves, and... Uh, why punish people like that I can't understand because they were told that they would be talking to a general audience but that is what academics would do if you left them to their own devices which at that stage is what we did. Of course after the, the, the moment of awfulness when they finished giving their paper uh, wonderful people in the audience would sort of put up their hand and say there was something you said that I thought was interesting and they'd give a, very generously give questions and suddenly these people would come alive and would be spontaneous and interesting. You thought, well, why didn't you do that for the last hour? Well, anyway, from that point on, uh, the forum pretty much closed the door on academics giving lectures. And among the people who helped me to put together a sort of form and format for forum events which would provide a coherent and a fertile way for academics without knowing it, not giving papers, um, was a man called Peter Goldie. Uh, Peter was then at King's College in London as a reader. Um, very sadly, Peter died in October last year and um, he'd been involved in the forum for a long time for, uh, during the course of uh, its life, at the early life at the LSE. And even when he took up a chair in Manchester University in 2005, he stayed on our committee and was a regular attender. Now, he'd had an absolutely remarkable career. Peter had begun not as an academic at all, but as a businessman. He was the CEO of a FTSE 100 listed um, public company. For various reasons, he left that and... Uh, decided that he would pursue philosophy. First, as a mature student um, at UCL, studying for a BA, then went on to do a BPhil and a DPhil at Oxford University, <coughs> and then, relatively late in life, it must be said, he became uh, a lecturer, a lecturer in philosophy at King's College in London, and then quickly promoted to reader, and then in 2005 became the chair of a newly formed philosophy department at the University of Manchester. 
So Peter had this amazing life, two lives. Uh, first as a, a, as a person working in commercial business and then as an academic philosopher, producing in both amazing legacies and in philosophy a substantial body of work, particularly on aesthetics and the emotions. And when I thought that it was right for the forum both to have another lecture and to use it to mark uh, Peter Goldie's death, um, it wasn't difficult for me to think of the person who might give that lecture. Uh, Guy um, received his PhD from King's College London in 2005, um, and he will have overlapped with Peter, and I think indeed knew, knew Peter Goldie himself. But uh, Guy, like Peter, doesn't have the mono-track mono career of a, of a kind of, of, a, of a jobbing academic who spent, would spend most of their time with these awful uh, research papers. He is a research associate at the Institute of Musical Studies in the University of London, uh, working on questions concerning the relationship between morality, aesthetics, and music, very much the sort of area that Peter Goldie was interested in. But he's also a journalist, a proper writing journalist, uh, a critic and commentator for The Guardian, contributing also to the TLS, to The Observer, The Daily Telegraph, The New Statesman, The Economist, and other journals. And he, he uh, writes beautifully, and I think you, I hope, <laughs> I can't, what can we do, set him up really badly, and he presents beautifully <laughs> as, as, as well. And so I'm delighted uh, to, to welcome Guy tonight, who will talk on to us on Beyond the Eye of the Beholder, then they'll be, he'll speak for about uh, an hour, 50 minutes to an hour, and then we'll have some chance for, as usual, for discussion and contributions from you two. So thank you very much, guys. Thank you very much. It was um, uh, an overwhelmingly generous introduction. Um, I, uh, I did know Peter and had a couple of tutorials with him, actually, and, and uh, I've read some of his books, which I can certainly, certainly recommend. Um, part of the reason I recommend them wholeheartedly is that some of them he wrote with my wife, um, who was his former PhD student. <coughs> so my knowledge of Peter, first and foremost, really came uh, to, through uh, his professional relationship with, uh, with, with Elizabeth Shellicans. Uh, um, um, so, um, and so I'm honoured to be giving a talk, which is in some way um, in memory of Peter. Um, I'm not going to use any of the material, although there's plenty of material from his books and teaching that uh, I could use. Um, but he's a very interesting example. In fact, one of the last papers he wrote, which is published in a book um, edited by Peter and also my wife, um, mostly by my wife, if <laughs> um, it called The Aesthetic Mind, which I think has been published by OUP, Oxford University Press, quite recently. Um, published a paper called The Ethics of Aesthetic Bootstrapping, which um, sounds a bit like one of these horribly dry, boring research papers that uh, Simon was um, just promising you wouldn't get now. Um, but actually isn't, it's absolutely fascinating. And part of it's autobiographical, and it's an account of the way Peter, when he uh, switched career, switched life, and switched um, a lot of things in his life, um, part of what he switched was his kind of artistic taste to a certain extent. He became very, very keen opera uh, buff, uh, and he became uh, very keen on uh, French film, uh, and was a great reader um, 
not just to philosophy, but to, of literature, and his works are littered, in fact, with references uh, to Robert Musil, uh, who was one of the writers who influenced him. His theory of the emotions, in fact, most. Um, but what's very interesting about this paper is he talks about the process of acquiring these tastes, which he, as it were, assumed that these uh, slightly more highfalutin tastes than he'd had in his former life um, would somehow kind of suit him, or, or he, it would be, what's that, it would behove him to have these tastes. In a way. So he's, very, he's very honest about, in a way, what would seem to us to be a slightly dishonest manoeuvre to kind of go about acquiring taste, and in a slightly old-fashioned way of saying, well, I, I want to better myself. Um, but actually, what he does is then tap on something very, very essential, which is, which is, in a way, that is often how we acquire some of the tastes, which then, some of the, the kind of aesthetic and moral tastes, uh, which then go on to be um, the most valuable uh, of our lives, to a certain extent. So, so he, he, he writes about that, and I'll talk about that a little bit um, in my talk as well. Now, the first thing you'll notice <coughs> It's, it's not 2011. Um, it's a typical <laughs> checkbook mistake. Um, actually, often it's not a mistake, is it? It's, it's to try and get out of having the check cash. Um, um, and this is just a result of of, uh, of the second of my New Year's resolutions. The first was to lose weight, uh, which I've started doing in a slightly punishing routine, which means I can close my <laughs> check it button. Uh, and it also means I'm in a quite a bad mood, so uh, <laughs> we'll just see how that goes. Um, um, and the other was to um, actually to start using PowerPoint more. I've, I've kind of been ignoring PowerPoint as a, as a way of teaching and stuff. It's kind of it's kind of everywhere. Um, I'm slightly suspicious of it because um, partly because there's a wonderful maxim here. Everyone knows that, that uh, power corrupts. And PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. Um, it, it's, it's partly that everything on a PowerPoint presentation, it, it looks ordered, but often disguises the fact that things aren't actually very well ordered. I get this with a lot of, a lot of papers you go to, the, ones, the, the academic papers which aren't just someone reading a text, which may or may not be beautifully written, but it's difficult to deliver in, a, in an engaging way. Um, the other ones are these, are these endless PowerPoint presentations. So I've pretty much done a, an endless PowerPoint presentation, and we'll see... Um, it will come to an end at some point. So I've called it Be Beyond the Eye of the Beholder. Um, I think the connotation is fairly obvious. Um, and the reason, the reason I went for this image um, is because I, um, both in my professional journalistic life and teaching life and just everyday life, I'm, I'm, I'm fed up of... Uh, of the genre of thinking and expressing myself, which, which follows the cliché or stereotype line, uh, I don't know much about art, but I know what I like. Um, it's funny that that riles everyone, that phrase, even though I don't think anyone's ever heard anyone say it, but th there's something about it which does nonetheless give voice to an attitude, um, which we all know. And one of the things that's most annoying about it um, is it does pinpoint something quite central uh, and true. Um, it does, it does impinge on a true reflection. Um, so, so what I want to do in this talk, really, is, 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 is just quite slowly, I hope, um, say why I think there's a, there's a bit more to the story than, OK, once we've accepted, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, uh, meaning it's a, it's a question of personal preference uh, and is rooted in our personal feelings. Um, that there's a bit more to the story 
after that. And then furthermore, that if we cut it at that, if, if all we expect to get from going to the opera or, or reading a book or um, just going out um, and hearing a band in a pub or in Wembley Stadium or wherever bands are playing, which is pretty much everywhere, um, that, that if we, all we do is give a report on whether we liked it or not, then, then we're, we're kind of selling it and ourselves short. Um, so it's rather an old-fashioned talk, despite the technology here. Um, so the first point is really um, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. This is not uh, news. It's not um, in a way particularly... Well, it's, it's, it's far from contentious. It's, it's, it's an orthodox... It's a point of orthodoxy now. Um, I just wanted in a way to, to remind um, that it's been a point of orthodoxy uh, and a point of contentious orthodoxy, but it's not a, it's an interesting oxymoron, um, for at least since, since Plato, really. Um, those of you who've read Plato will know that, that in various parts of his writing he's friendlier to artists uh, than in others. Uh, and he's notably unfriendly to artists uh, in his great text, um, the Republic, um, which I'm sure some of you have read, uh, or some of you will have tried to read and wondered what on earth um, the point of it was. So it's an odd text, but it's often given to A-level students, um, at least it was when I did A-levels, um, and people find it very difficult because it's an idealistic text, it's, um, it's, a, it's arguing from the, up, from the position of, of what would be the necessary conditions for an ideal state, and that ideal state is rather more like an anthill than the kind of flourishing um, diverse society that we, we think of as being an ideal society. Um, one, of the, one of the points of contention then that Plato had was that Plato was a, a, a rationalist idealist, um, if that means anything to you, in the sense that he thought that everything that was good um, should be intelligible as such and should answer to uh, particularly, specifically and determinately defined um, Concepts and understandings that we have of the things that we think are important. Um, and so he praises, um, before wondering about the, the good of, of art, this is particularly about um, painting, this bit, and I think it's in book three or four. Um, he uh, it talks about the, the way the craftsman, in, the craftsman will have a, an understanding of what the good of his craft is, because he will have a concept, say, if he's making chairs or beds, he will have a determinate. Uh, concept of what, what beds are good for and what makes a good bed. And in becoming a good craftsman, he will be imitating uh, images of excellence uh, in, in the way he makes his own bed. So the, the problem Plato found with a, with a painter, and indeed he applied this to poetry, he applied it to music, is that there is no determinate idea of what uh, constitutes uh, the beautiful. Or, in fact, the, the concept of the beautiful didn't really exist in um, in ancient Greece, but nonetheless, for the, for the sake of argument, um, he, he, he kind of was, was spot on saying that the, the key problem is that we don't have a way of defining uh, intelligibly what the image of excellence is for artistic practice in general. What, what kind of idea is it that was guiding us in our search for excellence? But at the same time, so, so, so he, he was suspicious of the arts from the point of view of the of the Republic, because people were guided by things that they couldn't make, by principles they couldn't make answerable to them. We couldn't resolve this in terms of reason, we can't resolve these things in terms of reason, therefore we're going to get stuck in all sorts of 
ruts of prejudice and unclear thinking and misunderstanding and being guided by our emotions, which, uh, uh, as um, Peter would tell you, is not such a bad, would have told you, is not, is not such a bad thing after all, but Plato thought it was uh, rather, rather bad. Um, so at the same time, Plato also, in, in, in different dialogues, uh, notably the Symposium um, and the Phaedrus, um, talks about beauty uh, as uh, the image of love, to a certain extent, as being something which guides us on the path to truth. Um, so there's a, a, there's, you know, from, from two and a half millennia ago, there's a, there's a full frontal opposition in the work of, of Plato, which is, which is carried through uh, in a lot of thinking. I mentioned two other, both of them 18th century, as it happens, which was the great a century in which there was a great explosion of talking about taste. Um, uh, uh, David Hume, uh, not particularly best known for his work on aesthetics. In fact, he, he only wrote a few things on aesthetics. One of them is called an essay. It's called an essay on the standard of taste. Um, and what he does is he attempts to, uh, to confront the same problem, this idea that, um, that there is a diversity of tastes which nobody seems to agree on and at the same time we feel uh, as if it were a matter of fact that some things uh, of an aesthetic kind or of an artistic kind are simply better than others and what he does is try to negotiate this problem. Now part of Hume's uh, interest in this subject uh, was not just because he was interested in, in, in 18th century tea parties or coffee parties having a having a nice outcome with everyone agreeing. Uh, it was because he, he thought of uh, the kind of value that we ascribe to art, namely aesthetic value, as being a kind of paradigm for artistic value in general. And he thought it was, he didn't write this much about it, but, but he thought it was, a, as it were, a crucial key to understanding uh, or to having a proper understanding of how moral value worked, um, which he uh, certainly thought was important. And he observed uh, a kind of... Um, conceptual chasm between the world of pure reason and the world of uh, values as things enshrined in, in feeling. Um, and his, his, his essay on taste is, is in, a, in a kind of quiet way an attempt to uh, negotiate this, this gap. Um, Kant is the other obvious figure uh, in, in this sense. Um, he uh, definitely wants to have his cake and eat it on, the, on, on this score. Um, and in fact, is the one most committed to the idea that both that, that, that uh, taste or judgments of taste or judgments about the beautiful are entirely rooted in our subjective responses. Um, that there is no sense in which they're ultimately grounded in, uh, in, 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 in the application of reason to um, sensory stimuli. Um, so he's absolutely convinced that's not the case, but he's absolutely convinced, and this makes a lot of people scratch their heads, and my head is missing several hairs after scratching about this for quite a long time. He's actually absolutely convinced that when we make a judgment of taste, that we are assuming that it should be true for everybody. So it's not simply saying that on the one hand, our aesthetic taste is subjective, and therefore, as a lot of people have subsequently said, that it applies only to me and nobody else need worry about it. He said this about one area of our uh, aesthetic experience. Um, but when it came to, to judgments of the beautiful, uh, which essentially equates to a judgment that a work of art uh, is something good, 
Um, it has a normative force. It has a, <coughs> it has a force that you want to prescribe this uh, experience for humanity in general. Um, and that's a, a very difficult thing to get to grips with, I think, in, in uh, contemporary society, where, as I say, we're a bit stuck uh, on the, the eye of the beholder part of this. And we, we tend to, to, to essentially not even bother trying to convince our friends maybe so much or convince other people of what we th might think is the rightness of our judgments. So um, contemporary art and aesthetics, um, they partly bypass this question of taste to a certain extent um, by, <coughs> in a way, giving up on it. Um, people aren't so bothered about it. And, and that's, that's manifest, particularly in, in conceptual art traditions, but also in the way you know, composers talk about reception of their music and the way everybody talks about their work. People don't really want to well, I'm generalising too much, but you often get the sense that people, people, people don't really want to convince everyone that, that what they're doing is right. It's everyone's happy just, well, this is what I like, and there it is, you can take it or leave it. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe that's a, a more peaceable and, and better way to be. Um, another feature of this in, in, as it were, art theory and practice in general is what we call beauty, which uh, has a very, very general application. Um, I'd argue, though probably not here, that, that it is a way. It's a it's a paradigm for the idea of indeterminate value in general. Um, but um, artists, on the whole, visual artists are often not very interested in the beautiful anymore. They haven't been for you know, 60, 70 years. Um, most famous example I can think of um, is the the great um, Dadaist and conceptual artist um, uh, Marcel Duchamp, who um, I'm sure a lot of you will be familiar with his great work, Fontaine, Fountain, uh, which was an upturned um, men's urinal, um, which he exhibited uh, to great effect. And it's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary thing. Anyway, someone once pointed out to him in, a, in an interview after he'd moved to the States um, that uh, his works were, in fact, rather beautiful, that the urinal had something beautiful about it. And that, in particular, um, I forget what it's called, but one of his, one of his ready-made, he called them ready-made, uh, was a, a bicycle wheel. And he said, do you not see that these things are beautiful? And he said, well, nobody's perfect. Because um, it, was, it was kind of, you know, the least item on his uh, agenda. Um, so yes, I, I should refer to what I've written here. Um, you much more often hear from, from artists in this tradition that they, they want to challenge us, they want to wake us up, or shake us around, or make us think. Um, most of them just want to show off. Um, and I'm sure that's always been the case. Um, and I think if one really thinks about what beauty is um, seriously, one realises actually all those things are a part of it. Uh, and that in, in, in having these kind of modern <coughs> concepts of what artistic experience amounts to, being shaken up, being woken up, um, being challenged, you know, how many times do we need to be challenged about what the idea of art is anyway? Um, this, is, this is all part of a central experience, which I would prefer to group under the idea of the beautiful. Um, so some issues here are um, compounding, <coughs> insofar as what I've described as a, a problem. These are some issues which, which I think are kind of making it more aggressively the case. So um, I think the way we think about art... <coughs> 
the arts um, nowadays has very much fallen into a kind of consumerist model. Um, I write here, artworks have become something you buy, either as a service or an object, um, from which you expect a return. That's a very crude way of putting it. And I don't think anyone, you know, coming home from the David Hockney show, uh, for instance, that's just opened the, the Royal Academy, I think it's open, um, or, you know, any, anything, we kind of think of it in, t in these terms. But nonetheless, these are the kind of controlling metaphors. And if we look at newspaper pages, um, there's an equivalence between arts and entertainment, which is uh, not only taken as read, but it's very, very hard to combat it. We see, we're, we're losing touch, I think, with the kind of narratives and concepts through which we can usefully tear apart these two ideas. Um, and so when that... Uh, Happens, then of course we, you know, of course we should have, in in that kind of reduced scenario, of course we should have a kind of consumer relation to the arts because you know we want to get our money's worth, so to speak. Um, but I think um, that clearly is uh, rather short-sighted. Um, there is a, um, oh yeah, I've got this phrase. I don't know much about art, blah blah blah. But we uh, we're all in touch, I think, with the idea that there is a, a general relativism in modern culture as a whole. I did actually hear this, this, this phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, is so widely used now that actually the least frequent usage, I think, is about beauty, because everyone takes that for granted. So people talk about all sorts of other things being... And I, I had a, a, a Tory politician, I think, um, during the campaign for the... Um, what's it called? That? The... Um, but they wanted to change the to, to, to proportional representation. Well, I forget what the term was. Was it called advanced voting or flexible voting or something? Alternative. Single transferable vote. It was something. One of the things that uh, obviously Tories didn't like. Um, and he said, well, I think the interviewer said, well, but surely this model of proportional representation is a little bit fairer. And, and the politician in question said, I forget who it was, well, fairness is in the eye of the beholder. Christ's sake, does everything have to be in the eye of the beholder? So, so, so we know that too well. And obviously there's good things about that. It, it is just a general expression of democracy, which is, which is a positive. I'm not saying this is all negative. Uh, another context uh, is um, in academia. This is not just a one-way shift. It's not like every single academic who's working in arts disciplines is somehow part of this um, conspiracy. It's not, it's not a conspiracy at all. It's just a general shift um, in favour of examining arts in terms of cultural history, in terms of uh, their status as kind of documentary artefacts which tell us about um, the culture which produced them. This is the way, on the whole, academics look at art objects nowadays. And there's a great... I mean, there's, there's lots of value in this, and obviously part of our interest in historical art is about this encounter with uh, our culture and its previous incarnation, or other people's cultures in previous incarnation. This is this is an important part, um, but we lose sight of the kind of elephant in the room, which is none of us would be studying, you know, any of this music or any of these books unless we thought they were beautiful. Um, and if you lose sight of this, as it were, which ought to be an institutional effort for. Um, arts criticism departments, so, so music departments, English departments, art history departments, art theory departments. Um, this ought to be, in a way, at the centre 
of, of, of what they're doing, and it, it, it really isn't on the whole. And in fact, I think in the interest, partly in the interest of making these disciplines a bit more hard-nosed and a bit more closer to social history or the social sciences, um, in order, I may say, to, to, to justify the amounts of government money which is going towards the so-called research and all these disciplines, um, that, that academics have had for years in America and in, in Europe um, have had to kind of disguise their interest in things like music and English lit as, as kind of you know, serious history. Um, but they, you do forget something very central about why it is that we're interested in these things in the, in the first place. Um, so another context, um, the democratisation of arts criticism. That's a euphemism, um, I think, for the great evil known as blogging. No, I, I, I don't actually think that at all. Um, I think, I think this, this great change that is, is coming about in the way that people practise arts criticism and, and the fact that anybody who goes to see anything uh, can simply start up uh, a blog or an internet site or contribute to another one. Um, that this is this is one of the great developments in our culture in the last 10, 10 15 years. Uh, it really is having a beneficial effect on the way uh, that the culture is received by a greater number of people. Um, so this talk, if anyone thought it was, certainly isn't against um, this kind of development. It does coincide with a kind of uh, economic crisis affecting the newspaper industry, which as far as I can tell uh, is downhill and is only going to continue going downhill. Um, uh, and that obviously affects people like me who, who, who do arts criticism for a living uh, because our space gets squeezed um, and uh, people don't want us to write for them anymore. That's, I think that's probably the crudest way to say it. Um, so this is a personal crisis, basically. Um, and another thing, obviously, in, in various countries, obviously, in, in, in Europe and America, actually there isn't much public funding, but, but kind of funding, whether it comes from philanthropy or from central government funds, uh, is in a certain amount of crisis. And, 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 and part of that is that, that there is still no reliable way of charting the relationship between the kind of value that we get out of artistic experience, which is not simply entertainment, um, into the, you know, the kind of economic models, uh, the kind of GDP or GDP plus models that, that politicians are, for better or for worse, forced to, to work with. There's really kind of no way that seems very clear to people of, of negotiating between us. And, and, and I certainly think that, that one of the most worthwhile efforts that creative people can engage in, um, whether they're critics or artists or, or consumers or sponsors or, or whatever, is to try and strengthen this this understanding. Um, so that's partly what um, the motivation for this this talk is, really. Um, so why why should we care um, that that there's something beyond? the eye of the beholder. Why does it mean anything? Why, 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 why are we bothered by this? Um, well, the reason I've put here, which I'll try and remember why, um, is we should care precisely because aesthetic experience is rooted uh, in subjective responses. And just as a proviso, that's not at all the same <coughs> as saying just because something is rooted in my individual response to something. It's not the same as saying uh, that my opinion is no better than anybody else's. Um, we're all different. Uh, some of us um, know less, some of us know more. Um, 
and that's not necessarily the deciding factor. Um, it's just, it's always, a, it's always a dodgy one to come across this, but, but, but the simple point is that the, these aren't, it doesn't follow from the idea that this kind of experiences are rooted in personal responses, uh, that all of them are, are good, all different responses are equally good. Um, we know that because lots of other things are subjective. Our, our response to colour is subjective. But some people are right uh, when they say that this room has green upholstery, and some people are wrong when they say it has yellow upholstery, um, because they're just simply wrong. Um, and artistic cases are obviously much more complicated. Right? But that, this is, you know, these things are, are subject. Green is only manifest. The sense of green is only manifest through a subjective response. Um, so just to, to, to go on from this, I mean, it, the, the model I'm proposing here is, of all the people I mentioned earlier, probably, it's probably related to, uh, more to Kant, Immanuel Kant, than anyone else. <coughs> so the, the kind of first axiom, which may be familiar to all of you, is that you know, one of the important things is that there are no rules for beauty. This is, this is, this is, this is another side of the coin. There's no, there's no master concept according to which we can say, well, that's beautiful and that's not, or this work of art is good or that's not. There's always going to be, if we, can't, if we try and make rules of thumb, and people were much keener on trying to make <coughs> rules of thumb in the old days. Um, 18th century is full of people discovering the secret <coughs> of beauty. Um, uh, the most famous example is um, Hogarth. Everyone knows Hogarth, um, the Rake's Progress Hogarth. Um, he, he, he wrote an essay called The Line of Beauty, which, um, which att attempted to say, well, this, is, this controls everything that we think of as beautiful. But at the same time, people were you know, writing completely different theories, um, and uh, we're still doing that. But at the heart of this idea is that there's no way, therefore, of confirming externally our judgment that something is beautiful. Um, so it requires us to be present, it requires us to be engaged, uh, it requires us to, as it were, wrestle with the material if we're to honestly determine what it is that we feel about something. Um, and in that sense, um, it's almost like uh, the perfect model for developing. Um, I hate it when things to do with the arts are, are reduced to personal development models and, and, you know, this is all about improving our lives. But it is, it is it's, like, you know, it's, kind of, it's kind of a central training ground for the development of auto you know, the ability to have autonomous uh, judgments, because we've only got ourselves really to answer to. And if we get it wrong, there's probably some dishonesty at play in the assessment, um, which, uh, which, as it were, lessens the experience. So, so we, we, we know, as it were, when we've done our job properly. Um, so something else here is that this, this shapelessness of beauty, which is exemplified in, in, in artworks of various kinds, um, is I think it's, it's, it's the kind of it's the, it's the other side of the coin of this, this idea that human beings uh, are defined by the indeterminacy of their, their desire. There's, lots of people have <coughs> kind of developed narratives and models and, and for, for understanding this indeterminacy, but, but um, uh, one of the ways I think in which it was done most powerfully um, was, was uh, 
by Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the 18th century, um, uh, who, who wrote a kind of secular version of the fall narrative, the fall of Adam, or the, you know, the, the fall narratives in pretty much every major religion. Um, and the 18th century was a great time of kind of secularizing, of, of creating, as it were, anthropological equivalents of these narratives. Now, Rousseau's uh, narration of the fall is very, is very interesting. It happens in his, um, uh, his second discourse on the origin of inequality. And, and the fall kind of happens the first time somebody... Um, points to a piece of land and says, this is mine. This is, this is, it all goes downhill from this, this moment of personal property. Um, but the reason he's plugged into that idea is that he's saying, well, there's something, if we're thinking about what human beings have that animals don't have, it's this, it's this desire for things that they don't need. Their, their subjectivity is out of kilter uh, in a certain sense. So animals, you know, Rousseau wrote a lot about Animals, he, you know, he's famous for writing about the state of nature, and people often misunderstand him to think that we'd all be much happier if we were living in caves. Um, what he really meant was we wouldn't be so unhappy if we were living in caves. So that's a, a very different point. Um, but um, so he, he, he made this point that, that um, we, we we have this odd faculty of of having desires for things that we really have no need for, and that we build these desires onto the other things. On, these are all compounded up. So as soon as we, as it were, get something, I mean, the most obvious way, if, if, if Rousseau had been alive now, um, he'd be laughing at everyone, you know, buying their new iPhones or buying this. Or, because it's this simple thing that you get this <coughs> thing, and you think, oh, this is going to, this shiny, beautiful object is going to solve all my problems, and I really must have this, and I must actually go to the shops and get it now, because tomorrow is going to be too late. And, and as soon as you get it, and you, you have this kind of cooling off process. You're just on to the next thing. Um, and this, as we all know, is the, is the great driving force behind uh, the economies of the, well, the entire world now. I was going to say Western world, but I mean, this, this kind of limitless desire is the subjective corollary of the idea that we can have unlimited growth in, in, in the countryside, I mean, in the, in the economy. And the, the flip side of that is there are obviously things like artworks, which also <coughs> relate or answer to this shapelessness of our desire, in a way. Because the same, the, the, the flip side of this idea that well, there's no concept for beauty, there's no set of rules for making a work of art, for appreciating a work of art, uh, or for verifying one's own judgment. That there's no end process, there's no end to the process of exploring a work of art. So a notion which satisfies equally well our, our sense that our sense of um, desire is on this kind of unrestrained rampage um, through endless natural resources and things. It's to think of it channeled in, into things like works of art um, where it can rampage on a kind of inward model. That all that happens the further you get in to the work of art is you deepen your relationship with it. That's, that's all that's, that's happening. Um, but it's still, it still answers to the same kind of basic unnatural appetite that distinguishes uh, humanity from animality. Um, uh, so, another 
key point, I, I we should move on because I've probably got too many slides, um, is this, this sense, that th this kind of experience, because it's open-ended, because it's doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't have this easy resolution into a tidy, determined concept, um, is that it, one has a, a direct relationship to, to our, our feelings. This, this was Kant's great, the reason for Kant's great interest in aesthetics. Um, direct relationship to, to the feeling of what it is to be free. Um, and at the same time, if we, if we um, bind ourselves, which is, which is how it works, if we bind ourselves to the judgments that we make and we constantly renew them, then this is how our artistic tastes become a, a valuable part of who we are. Um, it's a kind of truism recognised by everybody that you know our, our musical and literary taste. You know, you, you used to look at someone's bookcase or um, CD shelf or record record shelf to you know, get a good idea of who they who they are, who they were. And nowadays, of course, you can look on Facebook or any of these places where people have virtual collections of of their interests and pretensions and things. But you you, you do learn a great deal of that. This is this is a, a simple truism, but that's partly because because of the kind of shapelessness of the experience of getting to grips with a work of art, uh, because this, this experience is essentially shapeless. Um, uh, these, <coughs> these moments or, or forms, they occupy a role in our life which can't be, can't be cashed out in terms of anything else. So we, 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 it's, it's like all the, all the artworks that we've loved, the same as all the, all the people we've loved, and I don't mean like, you know, the, the great trail of of, of uh, romances and lovers we all leave behind us. I mean, I mean the friends that we have. Um, they all. If you take them away, we wouldn't be the same person. That, that's how it is with with affections which are, which aren't, as it were, to be cast out in terms of a rate of exchange. Um, and art, no less than uh, personal affection, uh, is of exactly this kind. On the whole, unless we're uh, psychopathic or some other kind of disorder, I, I don't really understand. Um, we don't, we don't like our friends for what they can do for us. And, and it's a good bet that if we like somebody because of what they can do for us, that we're not going to like them for very long. Um, it's, the same, it's the same thing, you know, I'm, I'm a, I, I like all kinds of music, but I'm also a, a musical snob. I really don't like bad music. Um, and people ask me about, you know, the great appeal of, of, of rock music and, and the kind of the sheer weight of, of numbers involved. I mean, the concerts that I go to that I think are really good. Sometimes there's you know 30, 40 people, and most of those are paid to be there. Or it can be quite depressing in that sense. And then you you know you you, you see that 25,000 people have been packing the O2 centre to hear somebody, and and they might be good. And and I I often you know try and you know I use this service called Spotify and and really try and listen to, to all these people. And some of them are good and some of them really aren't. And, but there's something suspicious that in, a, in, a, in an industry, in a cultural industry, where the main motivation for the artists is, is being famous. You just have to listen to read some interviews. That's, that's the main motivation. And the main motivation from the people helping them get famous is to make money. You know, there's two, there's two kind of instrumental desires at work in this. And... The chances of it being good really aren't very big. I think I mean, that's why there's so much of it. Um, whereas, you know, luckily, especially in the field of contemporary classical music, where there's really very, very few listeners, you know, the chances of becoming famous are, are minuscule if uh, they exist at all. 
Anyhow, that's, that's all, all by the by. I think you know this 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 sense in which artistic experience or aesthetic experience as something open-ended, you know, it goes right to the heart of of what it is to be uh, a human being. I think I think you know people say that either glibly or with a certain amount of wisdom, but it's very true. I think, and I think this 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 open-endedness is one of the one of the main reasons. Um, so another strand of this, um, so very cleverly italicised we in this title, but I've chosen a font in which the italics make almost no difference at all. So <laughs> it's just uh, well, I say chose, it's chosen for me. Um, is this idea that, that um, is that it's all just about us as individuals? Um, and that's a, simply forgetting a, a very, very obvious point about what, what artworks are and what, what artworks, you know, whether you look back to cave painting or to um, you know, prehistoric treasures, which, you know, a lot of people used to slap me on the wrist if you call them artworks, but, they, you know, they have certain family resemblance to, to what we, in our grand old age, call artworks. Um, the, the obvious feature about them, despite, in addition to being you know, well-crafted or beautiful or all these other things, is that they're objects of shared value. They're expressive of um, cultural desire. Um, not because they articulate a cultural desire necessarily, but because they just, they're just there. And the reason they're there, the reason they've been kept, is because their value is recognised. Um, in common by groups of people, by communities. Um, so, artworks of, of this kind, even though I'm using it as an anachronistic term, have always been community forming in that sense, or culture forming. And um, this, this, this way, I think, um, which I'm sure you all recognise, that we're, we're used to talking of, the, we're used to using the word culture in these two very distinct ways. We talk of culture in this anthropological sociological way there's a, there's a culture of expectation among you know, the, the, the benefits classes or there's a culture of um, expectation among the MPs or there's a culture of this or there's a culture of that um, and the other way we think of you know, culture in this kind of culture vulture or I, I like culture or I'm a cultured person as if these are two different things um, and they're not you know the, the the reason we both we use this word culture for for both things is that cultural objects or expressions of <coughs> culture, so to speak, um, they are what form culture. So, <coughs> in the same way, I was saying that that part of what makes us an individual in our experience with art is this kind of unique part of all our of all our artistic and and personal kind of loves and losses and all these things, all these things that we take them away, then we we wouldn't really be uh, as we are. Uh, that goes kind of doubly so for 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 culture. Culture is not just behaviour um, and belief. Uh, it's 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 surrounded. It's 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 kind of grouped around objects of shared value, which in a way unite people in the appreciation. And that's um, I think why the question that I'm trying to focus on today, although um, I've already run out of time quite soon, uh, is so important. Because if we're to talk meaningfully, I think, today, uh, of there being a way of connecting these two 
science of culture. If, it's, if, if cultural appreciation or artistic engagement is to add up to more than being just about whether I like something or not, um, then uh, we've really got our, our, our work cut out, I think, trying to, trying to, as it were, negotiate ways of talking about art that allow everybody to not only to have the opportunity to see its value, but um, to, to come to see its value. Um, so uh, I've got a couple of examples. This actually isn't one of them. Um, what this is uh, is a uh, painting. I'm sure some of you recognise it. Um, it's in the in the Prado in Madrid, um, and it's Christ being taken down from the cross. Um, an interesting feature of it is the shape of Christ. Um, this painting was was paid for um, by the band, the Guild of, of uh, Archers. So Christ is is uh, is in the shape of a of a crossbow, which was a, a recent invention. Um, which I thought was quite funny. Um, but it's used as an example. So um, just, can you actually see? Mm. You can see it all right. Um, uh, keep it in your minds. And what I'm going to do is read this very interesting extract from a book, um, new book by uh, an American author, uh, or debut author, this is his debut, really, uh, called Ben Lerner, called Leaving the Atoka Station. So it's uh, set in Madrid, obviously. Um, which uh, came out the end of last year in America, um, and I managed to download it on my e-book, e-reader thing, because um, it wasn't for sale in the shops. And I started reading, and I thought, well, how this is great. And I got three pages in, and then, and then the, the machine stole it again, because it wasn't licensed to my machine. So it was, a, it was an interesting So I'm, I was lucky I read far enough to get this. Um, so I, I won't read it all, but, but he, he has this, has this description, um, you can read it while I'm talking, uh, of going into the, to the museum. And he goes in, he has this routine. He's in, he's in uh, Madrid because he's a poet on a, on a Gulbenkian Foundation Scholarship or, or, or Leverhulme or something like that, to, to, you know, to, to become a poet. Uh, and he thinks to become a poet, he needs to have a better relationship with art. Uh, and he's right. Um, and he goes about trying to do this by going to sit in front of this painting for a certain amount of time every day and kind of just waiting to see when it's going to hit him. And uh, I'll start from the second paragraph. Um, uh, oh, no, I can't do that. Because, because what happens is one day he comes and someone else is kind of sitting in his seat or standing. And, and, and he looks at this guy and he goes, Christ, this guy's really got it. He's really, uh, you know, he's there. He's kind of motionless. And he's, I'm sure you can all imagine you know, what it is when you see certain kinds of people in art galleries and they just, they just have this stillness which is which which is purely surely born of you know something reasonably profound even if it's quite a superficial level or, or who knows um but anyway so so he gets very panicked by this oh my god and and was he having a profound experience of art i had long worried that i was incapable of having a profound experience of art and i had trouble believing that anyone had at least anyone i knew I was intensely suspicious of people who claimed a poem or a painting or a piece of music had changed their life, especially since I had often known these people before and after their experience, and I could register no change. <laughs> although I claimed to be a poet, although my supposed talent as a writer had earned me my fellowship in Spain, I tended to find lines of poetry beautiful only when I encountered them quoted in prose in the essays my professors had assigned in college. 
where the line breaks were replaced with slashes. So that what was communicated was less a particular poem than the echo of poetic possibility. Insofar as I was interested in the arts, I was interested in the disconnect between my experience of actual artworks and the claims made on their behalf. The closest I'd come to having a profound experience of art was probably the experience of this distance, the profound experience of the absence of profundity. Um, it's great, I think. It's very funny. Um, the reason I quoted it is because I think it's something. It's an experience we all recognise. Um, a lot of us, you know, um, something you know. Again, Peter Peter Goldie talked about. There's, there's a there's a great kind of nervousness at the heart of our relationship, particularly with the fine arts. You get this uh, terrible thing, particularly in you know in classical music, in the sense of you know the, the, the big orchestral concerts and opera in particular. People kind of you know. Well, yes, I. I I think this is wonderful, but I don't understand it. And, and people, people very nervous about the works themselves, about the culture surrounding it. Um, and particularly nervous of this great kind of myth of the, you know, the, 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 the aesthetic experience, which is a bit like the, you know, when a teenager, when you're a teenager, comes up and kicks you in the back of the, back of the knees. And you, you know your, your legs, you know your legs give way underneath you. And, and you know there are there are ways of being caught out or caught by uh, works of art. And music is a good example of this, I think, which are equivalent to that. But they're very rare. Um, and it's a bit like you know the, all the kind of hopeless romantics who, are, who stand around waiting to to fall in love, as if you know falling in love is just a question of meeting Mr. or Mrs. Wright. Um, that most of the way that these experiences come to us are through just simply living with a process of coming to terms with something. Um, a lot of it is, 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 is much less kind of immediate than we, than we think it is. Um, but he does, you know, in another way, um, kind of blow a hole in my whole argument. So that's, that's one of the reasons I, I wanted to, to cite him. The fact that he has this, this interest in the arts, which I think is you know, genuine and obviously comes out of you know, the great tradition of American liberal arts education. Um, he's interested in the disconnect between my experience of actual artworks and the claims made on their behalf. And that's the, that's the disconnect, I think, that, that I think that people in, in my position and who knows, people in your position have a kind of duty to, to try to close. And a lot of it, I think it... I'll continue and then... I may be able to get to that in a minute. Um, so we have this sense, and this is what uh, Lerner is, I think, principally referring to, is that our artistic experience in a, is, is a way kind of bullied out by this um, sense of just, just so much stuff that's been around for so long. Uh, it's a particular problem for creative artists who are trying to create new things. Um, it's less challenging for for those of us that simply write about it or think about it. Um, uh, but he's giving expression, I think, to, to lots of things <coughs> which are quite common uh, and quite common as things that get in the way uh, of people taking art seriously. This is this thing of self-doubt, um, this thing of resentment, of confusion, being alienated, uh, of the whole idea, um, which I referred to earlier, of this kind of inauthenticity of of saying, well, my own tastes are not good enough as guides anymore, so I must, I must kind of strap myself onto someone else's and see if I can 
join with them in this, this journey or whatever. Um, uh, and another thing is this, I think, perhaps being a bit ungenerous to the narrator, but uh, it seems to me he's kind of sitting there and waiting for all this stuff to hit him. Um, and that um, seems to relate to this, this kind of slightly consumer model idea that, that we just sit there and we, we, we wait to be got, rather than kind of going out to meet it halfway. I, I, I wrote, ask not what Beethoven can do for you, is it, with the obvious continuation of ask what you can do for Beethoven, but it's, um, it's uh, not so important. Um, so that's all there. Um, this process of educating taste, I think it's interesting. Um, I am lucky enough to have a child and I don't hesitate to try and correct or interfere with the development of her tastes on a gustatory, moral and aesthetic level. Um, there are things I like her to watch on television like Tom and Jerry uh, and Peppa Pig uh, and lots of old Swedish films that uh, my, she's half Swedish um, that she likes in the same way that I you know, try and get her to eat her greens and stuff. We, 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 none of us really have a problem with this idea that we should, we should uh, interfere with, with our children's tastes. Um, and we don't really have a problem with the old-fashioned narrative, we should like this because it's good for you, it will stand you in good stead, or you'll, you'll come to remember this. You know. We're always forcing things like piano lessons on our, our children. And some of that can really be kind of destructive. But you know, quite often it's true that this is something that they can build on for the rest of their life. Um, but for some reason, we assume that when people become adults, that we should stop doing this, as if everybody knows their own minds. But it's even more true of adults that are. You know, if you think about our gustatory tastes, if I, if I, as an adult, don't like a tomato, that's much more ridiculous than a child not liking a tomato. Um, you know, tomatoes are great, but <laughs> unless you unless you're you know allergic or there is some particular physiological reason, you know, and all a child has to go on is that, ooh, I don't like that, and, and that's a, you know, great bona fide judgment, but adults are just, oh, I don't like tomatoes, and it's, it's kind of pathetic, and I think, I think that kind of respect that we pay to adult taste in that sense, you know, it extends outwards to, to all these things, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be shy um, of trying to convince people that, that they should uh, like things. Um, uh, and just as individual taste is formed around these kind of habits which can be broken and which, through which we all benefit from them being broken this is the same of culture uh, and if all culture becomes is something which simply sits on its cultural laurels or its museums effectively if, if, if culture becomes a kind of museum aspect um, so if all academics do is look at these things as artefacts from the past um, and if all we do is kind of silently worship all these things from behind glass without you know, trying to create new, new pathways towards them, then, then we're doing the same thing. We're, we're congealing our culture. Um, uh, and so that's what I mean by um, only dead or dying cultures need to worry too much. That, that, that we've got nothing to fear from this. You know, culture's always changing, both in the, in the art sense and in the in the anthropological sense. Uh, and it's only, you know, cultures on the verge of distinction which really have to kind of grab onto all they hold dear and keep on telling themselves why they love it. Um, you know, we're in a much better position than that, partly because we live in 
you know, in a society which is, by definition, uh, uh, a meeting of cultures. Um, just quote this very quickly. Um, it's from Friedrich Nietzsche, from The Gay Science. Uh, this is a passage cited by Peter Goldie in his essay. Um, uh, and he cited it in a very, very personal context. Um, so first one has to learn to hear a figure in a melody at all, to detect and distinguish it, to isolate and delimit it as a separate life. Then it requires some exertion and goodwill to tolerate it, in spite of its strangeness, to be patient with its appearance and expression, and kind-hearted about its oddity. Finally, there comes a moment when we are used to it, when we wait for it, when we sense that we should miss it, if it were missing. And now it continues to compel and enchant us relentlessly until we have become its humble and enraptured lovers who desire nothing better from the world than it and only it. But that is what happens to us not only in music. That is how we have learned to love all things that we now love. Even those who love themselves will have learnt it in this way. But there is no other way Love, too, has to be learned. Um, I won't even bother expanding on that because it's so obviously true and so obviously relevant, I hope, to what I've just said. Um, and a good, a good kind of counter-movement to the, to the scepticism um, excellently expressed in the, the American novel. Just very quickly, because um, it would be lovely to have some questions. Um, I just want to say a few things about what, what criticism is. Um, and I, I don't just mean the kind of criticism that I do or, or uh, writing in newspapers or writing in periodicals. And things. I just mean the whole enterprise of writing about, thinking about, uh, debating about art. I think all, all genuine artistic experience really comes under the umbrella of, of being critical. Um, so it is true, you know. You can't, you know, whether you're writing a you know 200-word movie review with a four-star rating or a 3,000-word essay, um, you can't be factually correct or incorrect when it comes to evaluating something as being good or bad. Um, it's just simply not true. But it has this aspect in which it does become as it were, quasi-factual, in that if you think about what a successful piece of criticism does, it doesn't, it doesn't just proffer a, a judgment that sits, sits next to a work of art and you can look at the judgment, you can look at the work of art. You know. Yep, that fits, that fits, that's all great. What it does is, is or should, I think, is, is, is lay a, a pathway that, that allows people who read this or, or speak with somebody, Al allows them to see for themselves what's in a piece of music or hear for themselves what's in a piece of music or read for themselves what there is to be found. And in that sense, the criticism or the tradition of criticism or the tradition of understanding a work of art becomes part of the work of art itself. It's not like criticism stands outside a work of art. It's, if it genuinely does, open up a pathway and this, you know, for every new generation looking at the same things or for every new item uh, that's, that's there to be listened to or thought about um, there, is, there is a newness uh, 
here. For, for, for every time that happens, the, a piece of good criticism is, in a sense, is, is, is attaching itself to the work of art. It becomes part of what we understand as being there in the work of art. and becomes. I was going to talk about a few examples, but we've run out of time. But an obvious example would be um, something like the, the, the German critic Ute Hoffmann's you know, review of, of reviews of Beethoven. Um, which he published uh, in a newspaper called the Allgemeine Musikalische Zeitung, um, the, the music journal, essentially, in, in Germany. Um, um, and the way he described Beethoven's music um, in terms of uh, sublime aesthetics, in terms of uh, a level of technical detail which really allowed the reader to get to, get to, to grips with what's going on in the music uh, on a kind of level of uh, intellectual and spiritual adventure. But he really, as it were, changed the way through this act of criticism that people listen to this music uh, and therefore changed you know, how the music is. Uh, and that's true of all relationships. That's true of the relationship between art and criticism in general. Um, so the purpose of criticism in a way is, is to shape these cultures of taste that I'm talking about and to make them more real and so this final point, finalist point, the better the criticism, the better the, I'm just going to read it in case I can work out what I meant to say, the, the better the criticism, the better the work, the better the culture it binds around it. I think what I mean there is, is, is two things really. Um, <coughs> in this, this sense in which good criticism or good, as it were, level of thinking about artworks, both historical and contemporary, um, they're part of what realise that they are part of the process of realising um, as of making real um, the values of, of artworks and insofar as this becomes true in the sense that it becomes true for culture in general that these new artworks or old artworks again become good then the better the kind of experience, the better the kind of experience, the more open ended or the more tolerant or the more perhaps expressive of certain kinds of, I sound very old-fashioned, but some, some various kinds of moral qualities, uh, I speak of tolerance and, and these kind of things, uh, the more intrinsic this becomes to the culture of appreciation, and the better, in a way, we all become as people. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd thing to try and talk about, and it's always very difficult, particularly in the, in the classical music scenario, because you know the one culture that really tried to do this was because of the, the Nazis who tried to you know, uh, control people's musical taste uh, and really concentrated on, on, on a, certain, a certain tradition and of course they're not the great world's best exemplars of what I mean by a, by a better culture um, so there's obviously problems there um, but nonetheless that's um, that's that's uh, my point really um, My talk is petering out rather than ending with a bang, so uh, I'm just going to... I've got to leave it at that, I think, um, if that's all right. That's great. <laughs> well, I've got a lot to ask, but I'm going to uh, hold myself back because I know other people want to, and I get to talk to you afterwards, and they don't. So, um, we do have some time, so please, please ask away and we'll see where we can get.
there was, I think, a time when people just wanted to see the same good thing over and over again, perhaps more perfect even with the, you know, the perspective and things like that. While today, um, I think you could say nothing worse to an artist. I don't know that many, but the few I know to say, oh yeah, I have seen this before, or this is just like, and then name some predecessor. So there is this whole demand on artists to be non-canonical and to have always something new. It's an own value. Um, and I was therefore a bit curious why you, um, you talk very much about our experience with art as non-artists. But one other argument I would have is that, so to speak, this movement towards the autonomy of art asks, in a way, our is that the artist cannot go back just to a canon that he or she reproduces. It requires also from us to, to rely only on our subjectivity and build our rules and judgments on this non-canonical art. It is, a, it is a demand of us mm. that the work makes. Mm. At least more than I think we hit on something totally fundamental, I think, because there, there, there is a there's a great virtue to there being a canon because it is part of this this aspect in which we can we can feel palpably that we have shared values which are not which are not kind of um, shared mission statement in the way you get in a, in a, in a corporation website uh, but I mean just you know tangible aspects of common experience that we can we can all tune into and relate um, and a canon of any kind. Uh, whether it's, you know, instantaneously formed for, a, as it were, an instant community, or something which, in, in West, in the case of Western European culture, kind of stretches back for years, occupies a, a very, very important, um, or plays a very important role. But at the same time, and and one has to pity artists, I think, working now because everyone's bad. At, you know, it's not it's not just, you know, would-be poets like like this chap in the American novel. Uh, it must be a nightmare trying to, to do something new. And one of the you know, great problems we have, particularly, I think, of, with contemporary music, um, which is what I know more about, I suppose, is that people have really lost touch with the idea that people need them to write music, because it's all there. You know, there's, there's even computers in, in California which can write Chopin. They can write new bits of Chopin. If, we, if all we want to listen to was Chopin, we, we have all that there. So it's, it's very hard to get back to this idea. Uh, and yet it does resolve around this fundamental paradox, which is, which is that it's, it's kind of essential to our notion of what, what beauty is or aesthetic value is, um, that it's productive of newness, that it's productive of, of something new in our experience. Um, that's what I mean when I, when I was talking about this idea that it, it, it kind of is an answer to, to our indeterminate, the indeterminate nature of our desires, that it, it kind of mops up that, you know, instead of the chain of iPhone 3, iPhone 4, iPhone 5, iPhone 6, this kind of outwards chain of always wanting the next thing. Um, the fact that we can always find something new in the same work of art, uh, or something new in the same tradition of art, uh, is part of what allows us to, to be absorbed, it allows our subjectivity to be absorbed in these experiences. Um, so for that reason, it's it's paradoxical. I think. I mean, it's it's very difficult for 
for artists. Um, but newness is a is a is a duty, but you should never trust artists too much when they seem obsessed about doing something new because they're often not doing something new. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah, one here and then one here. When, when for, a, for a paper you um, critique a, a work of art, could you describe what happens in you? Yes. Probably. I mean, it's something different every time, I hope. But, but um, let's say, okay, I, I, the last thing I reviewed, um, which will be out in this week's TLS, is a new, um, was a new piece by Alexander Gurr, who uh, is uh, going to be 80 this year. He's a, he's a, a German-born British composer. <coughs> uh, and he'd uh, written a new piece, um, and it was being uh, performed as part of a uh, BBC Symphony Orchestra concert on last Friday. Anyway, so I went along to that. And, and his music is always a bit like this. It's quite, it's quite detached. Um, and it's quite loyal to certain aspects of 20th century musical aesthetics that, that a lot of people have moved on from. So it's, it's strictly atonal, if, you, if, if that means something to you. It, uh, um, it's uh, often, uh, I won't, uh, um, it's, all, it's often very detached. And so I sat down and I thought, mm, this just isn't really grabbing me. And there was a, there was a piece beforehand which had been really kind of, kind of, which I hadn't heard before either. It was a 10th symphony of a chap called Nikolai Myaskovsky, um, an older contemporary of Prokofiev's, um, and rather good. And, and I was quite bowled over by this. And then there was this kind of, you know, academic piece by Alexander Gurr, which was apparently, I couldn't really hear it um, at the time, apparently a kind of study of the bass line written by Bach to his choral prelude on the ancient Lutheran, Lutheran chorale of When Adam Fell, um, which is a, an old chorale early. So very academic in all these senses. And I was thinking, well, this just isn't grabbing me, and I can see it's all very nicely coloured, and it's very precise, and it's very like this. Um, but the, the longer the piece went on, the more I just... It's not that I made an effort to kind of overcome my lack of involvement, but I just was able to take my kind of lack of raw emotional involvement for, for what it was, which is a part of what the piece is, to a certain extent. It's part of, I suppose, what the piece is about. And, and luckily this, this concert was broadcast, uh, and you could hear it again on, on iPlayer. Uh, and I listened with the score and had to think about it. And it just struck me as well, it's actually one of the best things he's done recently. It's absolutely, absolutely wonderful. So, so I was quite lucky that I could hear it again. I, mean, I did like it by the end of the first performance, which is what made me listen again. But um, it's, it's, it's hopefully not unusual that I will change my mind about things several times. And, and the unfortunate aspect of, um, of reviewing for a daily paper is, of course, you have to send in your judgment the next day. You have to you know, stick to it. But, um, but uh, I, I like it when my mind gets changed. It's important here that the, this idea of... <coughs> the work not being finally consumed mm. in your experience of it or your reading it or seeing it. How, how, is that something to do with the kind of object it is for you? Yes. How, how does it do that? 
How but, does it remain still to come for us? Because it, it, I, I'm quite old-fashioned about these things in a sense. Right? I, th I think the, the meaning of a work of art, or the, the raison d'etre of a work of art, is simply, not simply and solely, but simply to be beautiful. Um, I think that's, that's why we create things, because, because and what I mean by beauty, and I think what most other people mean by it when they think about it, is, is, is just something which, to which we are attracted in a very palpable way, whether this sense is intellectual or just like you know, from, from the gut. But nonetheless, you, you feel it. But you don't know, you don't know why. There is no, there's no equation saying, I like it because of this. It's not, it's not, I really feel a craving for, oh yes, ice cream. Let's <laughs> dealt with that. Or I really feel a craving for sex or something like that. All these things that have end points. Um, you know, music and, and artworks, they're not like that. Um, and that's because they're, as it were, created in this, this is why Plato was so interested when he, interesting when he kind of spotted this great problem about, about artists and, you know, Greece was a culture that took its poets in particular and sculptors very, very seriously. And he was just saying, well, none of you know what you're doing because you don't know. You don't know what the image of, you don't, there is no kind of platonic form for the beautiful. That was his point. Um, so it is by definition always open. Yeah, um, I, I teach in visual art, in fact, um, in this, uh, those sort of antediluvian dinosaur or obsolete things called uh, painting and drawing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yes, in our brave new inter internet world, uh, but also uh, media and film, interestingly as well, naturally. Um, but an important distinction which you hadn't um, referred to is the differences between the various media. Um, despite, though they have overlaps, of course, um, there are, uh, uh, one could say, key, key differences. And you know, I, I would direct my students on a theoretical level, on an art theory level, to sort of start, start with Lessing and look at Lessing's comparison Mm. the media, you know, of painting and poetry, of uh, painting as an art of space, and uh, poetry, and of course music as an art of time, um, um, and all the various other, you know, the other things, the nature of the, the nature of a sound, one being determined or mimetic, or cognitive, the other being arbitrary, and that sort of thing. Um, so, so I was wondering, uh, what you might say about that. That's one point I jotted down. And there was a uh, couple of two other small points, well, uh, points related to that. I mean, Pater says, uh, Pater's famous for saying all arts aspire to the condition of music. Well, for those in the visual arts, that rather sort of, in many respects, undermines the kind of determinant, the, the kinds of um, search for structure and that sort of thing we might be looking for because it's rather rather different um, for instance uh, you, you mentioned Kant's aesthetics well in painting I would direct students really to sort of Kant's epistemology the idea of there being necessary structures or principles that make perception and creativity possible so in fact you know, it's not necessarily completely all open or arbitrary or non-cognitive, as current art fashions suggest. 
might sound to pin down, but of course, art schools ditched all that. You know, by the end of the 70s, most art schools had ditched any idea of talking about perceptual principles or anything like that. Um, um, and, uh, what, yeah, the, the, the other you position... Yeah, yeah, anyway, yes, uh, what you might think. I, I was interested, too, this idea of the openness of um, uh, character from the process of critical engagement. That seems ultra-important. Mm. And that's something that I think we get very much from uh, German uh, critical philosophy moving up through hermeneutics, dialectics, through Schiller-Hegel, um, Schiller-Hegel, Marx, the Frankfurt School, Benjamin Mordon, those people, how to counter closure, you know, identity where our opinions and judgments you know, get trapped and like narcissists in their own reflection. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's absolutely right. That's certainly a relevant tradition. And, and all I'm trying to do is, is kind of talk about some things that, that people like, you know, everyone from Schlegel to Adorno in this tradition that you're talking about, um, we're talking about in, 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 in ways which are a bit more everyday and, and relate to things that we can all understand. Because from, you know, I've read a lot of Adorno and a lot of Frankfurt School stuff. Um, and it's terrible to teach because because your students don't understand it and they understand all the wrong things from it or they don't understand the context. So so that's by the by. Um, the um, the point about all the arts being different is a, is a is a crucial one and Sartre made this point and of course Lessing and you know Plato didn't think of all you know nobody in ancient Greece thought of the arts as a kind of 18th century invention les beaux arts. Um, but I think in 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 concentrating on the idea or the, the, the you know, the non-idea of beauty, the phenomenon of beauty, um, which is what Kant did. Uh, the one is identifying a common aspect, an aspect of artistic experience, which, which as it were, could work as an umbrella concept for the whole endeavour that we, we think of in terms of the arts. Um, and the other point I think that I, I always try and avoid is, yes, of course, they all operate differently, and in a way, we'd all be much better at remembering what all the different art forms are good at doing if we if we got rid of all the historical examples and said well okay there's there's 80 of us in the room so we need most of us to be making food and stuff but we need a few musicians and a, someone to paint and decorate and we need someone to tell stories or to record the stories of other people we'd have a much more kind of palpable idea of what, what the roles of all these kind of cultural activities uh, are what, what kind of things they're performing um, Okay, I've got two, two more, I'll get even more actually, we'll try and get, we'll get one there and then we'll go right to the back and then we'll see if we've got time left. Um, sorry, I was just uh, interested in um, picking up on the idea of the canon, um, and the idea that sort of certain works of art have been canonised, and um, you know, your point about passing down knowledge to your children, um, sort of, I was wondering how you felt about the sort of the role of a society in, you know, you think about the aesthetic judgment in the terms of here's you and here's the artwork, but obviously there's the context of the society and your judgment will always be informed by ideas that are surrounding you and 
it's a very good point. I think two things um, that are important. One is um, the worst thing, the worst aspect of canonicity, if I can fancy phrase, is a, a sense of entitlement it produces, just to simply be there and be valued. I think if, if works of art aren't earning their keep, then we should chuck them. We should put, we should look them away. I think I'm, I'm one of the unusual people who really do subscribe to the idea that there's no such thing as bad art. I think if something isn't really responding to our, as it were, artistic needs, um, then it doesn't really count as an art, it counts as, a, as an artifact. So, right. I, I think that Cameron is, in a way, one of the great enemies of this, this idea. But the, but the other thing is why Cameron's also useful, is that in this, this, this kind of process of sharing or, use the term teaching, Kind of value of our own or established or cultures in triumph, aesthetic values, um, is that the you know the central point is always that you, you can't just pass these things down. You can't just say you will like this because it, it doesn't happen unless whoever is the relevant individual or all the individuals come to see it for themselves. That's that's the heart of the process. Because there's no there's no there's no way of saying well you can take it as red, blah 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 is good because you could say that in the practice we do observe similar. Forms. But it doesn't mean anything, you know, unless you see it for yourself. That's why it's so important. That's why, when it does work, it is so powerful because it's, it's, it's we who've done it. Does that answer your question? Yeah. You? No, let's say it doesn't because that's a good way to end without it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm afraid we have, we have run out of time. Um, but, Guy, thank you very much. It was really very good.